Section 20 of Gray's Anatomy, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Stearns. Anatomy of the Human Body, Part 1, by Henry Gray. Section 20. The Skull. The skull is supported on the summit of the vertebral column and is of an oval shape, wider behind than in front. It is composed of a series of flattened or irregular bones, which, with one exception, the mandible, are immovably jointed together. It is divisible into two parts. One, the cranium, which lodges and protects the brain, consists of eight bones, and two, the skeleton of the face, of fourteen, as follows. Skull, twenty-two bones. Cranium, eight bones. Occipital, two parietals, frontal, two temporals, sphenoidal, ethmoidal. Face, fourteen bones, two nasals, two maxillae, two lacrimals, two zygomatics, two palatines, two inferior nasal conchae, vomer, mandible. In the basal nomenclature, certain bones developed in association with the nasal capsule the inferior nasal conchae, the lacrimals, the nasals, and the vomer are grouped as cranial and not as facial bones. The hyoid bone, situated at the root of the tongue and attached to the base of the skull by ligaments, is described in this section. The occipital bone, ossa cranii, and os occipitale. The occipital bone, situated at the back and lower part of the cranium, is trapezoid in shape and curved on itself. It is pierced by a large oval aperture, the foramen magnum, through which the cranial cavity communicates with the vertebral canal. The curved expanded plate behind the foramen magnum is named the squama. The thick, somewhat quadrilateral piece in front of the foramen is called the basilar part, whilst on either side of the foramen is the lateral portion, the squama, squama aspitalis. The squama, situated above and behind the foramen magnum, is curved from above downward and from side to side. Surfaces. The external surface is convex and presents midway between the summit of the bone and the foramen magnum a prominence, the external occipital protuberance. Extending lateralward, from this on either side are two curved lines, one a little above the other. The upper, often faintly marked, is named the highest neutral line, and to it the Galea aponeurotica is attached. The lower is termed the superior neutral line. That part of the squama, which lies above the highest neutral lines, is named the planum occipitale, and is covered by the occipitalis muscle. That below, termed the planum neutrale, is rough and irregular for the attachment of several muscles. From the external occipital protuberance, a ridge or crest, the median neutral line, often faintly marked, descends to the foramen magnum, and affords attachment to the ligamentum nuchae. Running from the middle of this line across either half of the neutral plane is the inferior neutral line. Several muscles are attached to the outer surface of the squama. Thus the superior neutral line gives origin to the occipitalis trapezius, and insertion to the sternocleidomastiotis, 
and splenius capitis. Into the surface between the superior and inferior neutral lines, semispinalis capitis and the obliquus capitis superior are inserted, while the inferior neutral line and the area below it receive the insertions of the recti capitis posterioris major and minor. The posterior atlanto-occipital membrane is attached around the posterolateral part of the foramen magnum, just outside the margin of the foramen. The internal surface is deeply concave and divided into four fossae, cruciate eminence. The upper two fossae are triangular and lodge the occipital bones of the cerebrum, the lower two are quadrilateral and accommodate the hemispheres of the cerebellum. At the point of intersection of the four divisions of the cruciate eminence is the internal occipital protuberance. From this protuberance, the upper division of the cruciate eminence runs to the superior angle of the bone, and on one side of it, generally the right, is a deep groove, the sagittal sulcus, which lodges the hinder part of the superior sagittal sinus. To the margins of the sulcus, the fac cerebri is attached. The lower division of the cruciate eminence is prominent, and is named the internal occipital crest. It bifurcates near the foramen magnum, and gives attachment to the falx cerebelli. In the attached margin of this falx is the occipital sinus, which is sometimes duplicated. In the upper part of the internal occipital crest, a small depression is sometimes distinguishable. It is termed the foramen fossa, since it is occupied by part of the vermis of the cerebellum. Transverse grooves, one on either side, extend from the internal occipital protuberance to the, to the lateral angles of the bone. Those grooves accommodate the transverse sinuses, and their prominent margins give attachment to the tentorium cerebelli. The groove on the right side is usually larger than that on the left, and is continuous with that for the superior sagittal sinus. Exceptions to this condition are, however, not infrequent. The left may be larger than the right, or the two may be almost equal in size. The angle of union of the superior sagittal and transverse sinuses is named the confluence of the sinuses. Torcular hierophily. Footnote. The columns of blood coming in different directions were supposed to be pressed together at this point. Torcular, a wine press. End footnote. And its position is indicated by a depression situated on one or other side of the protuberance. Lateral parts. Pars lateralis. The lateral parts are situated at the sides of the foramen magnum. On their undersurfaces are the condyles for articulation with the superior facets of the atlas. The condyles are oval or reniform in shape, and their interior extremities, directed forward and medialward, are closer together than their posterior, and encroach on the basilar portion of the bone. The posterior extremities extend back to the level of the middle of the foramen magnum. The articular surfaces of the condyles are convex from before backward and from side to side, and look downward and lateralward. To their margins are attached the capsules of the atlanto-occipital articulations, and on the medial side of each is a rough impression or tubercle for the alar ligament. At the base of either condyle, 
The bone is tunneled by a short canal, the hypoglossal canal. Interior, condyloid foramen. This begins on the cranial surface of the bone, immediately above the foramen magnum, and is directed lateralward and forward above the condyle. It may be partially or completely divided into two by a spicule of bone. It gives exit to the hypoglossal or twelfth cerebral nerve, an entrance to a meningeal branch of the ascending pharyngeal artery. Behind either condyle is a depression, the condyloid fossa, which receives the posterior margin of the superior facet of the atlas when the head is bent backward. The floor of this fossa is sometimes perforated by a condyloid canal, through which an emissary vein passes from the transverse sinus, extending lateralward from the posterior half of the condyle as a quadrilateral plate of bone, the jugular process, excavated in front by the jugular notch, which, in the articulated skull, forms the posterior part of the jugular foramen. The jugular notch may be divided into two by a bony spicule, the intrajugular process, which projects lateralward above the hypoglossal canal. The undersurface of the jugular process is rough and gives attachment to the rectus capitus lateralis muscle and the lateral elanto-occipital ligament from this surface and eminence. The paramastoid process sometimes projects downwards and may be of sufficient length to reach and articulate with the transverse process of the atlas. Laterally, the jugular process presents a rough quadrilateral or triangular area which is joined to the jugular surface of the temporal bone by a plate of cartilage. After the age of 25, this plate tends to ossify. The upper surface of the lateral part presents an oval eminence, the jugular tubercle, which overlies the hypoglossal canal and is sometimes crossed by an oblique groove for the glossal pharyngeal, vagus, and accessory nerves. On the upper surface of the jugular process is a deep groove which curves medialward and forward and is continuous with the jugular notch. This groove lodges the terminal part of the transverse sinus and opening into it, close to the medial margin, is the orifice of the condyloid canal. Basilar part, pars basilaris. The basilar part extends forward and upward from the form and magnum and presents in front an area more or less quadrilateral in outline. In the young skull, this area is rough and uneven, and is joined to the body of the sphenoid by a plate of cartilage. By the twenty-fifth year, this cartilaginous plate is ossified, and the occipital and sphenoid form a continuous bone. Surfaces On its lower surface, about one centimeter in front of the form and magnum, is a pharyngeal tubercle which gives attachment to the fibrous raphae of the pharynx. On either side of the middle line, the longus capitis and rectus capitis anterior are inserted, and immediately in front of the form and magnum, the anterior elanto-occipital membrane is attached. The upper surface presents a broad, shallow groove, which inclines upward and forward from the form and magnum. It supports the medulla oblongata, and near the margin of the foramen magnum gives attachment to the membrana tectoria. On the lateral margins of the surface are faint grooves for the inferior 
Petrol Cell Sinuses Formin Magnum The Formin Magnum is a large oval aperture with its long diameter, anterior-posterior. It is wider behind than in front, where it is encroached upon by the condyles. It transmits the medulla oblongata in its membranes, the accessory nerves, the vertebral arteries, the anterior and posterior spinal arteries, and the membrana tectoria and alar ligaments. Angles. The superior angle of the occipital bone articulates with the occipital angles of the parietal bones and, in the fetal skull, corresponds in position with the posterior fontanelle. The inferior angle is fused with the body of the synoid. The lateral angles are situated at the extremities of the grooves for the transverse sinuses. Each is received into the interval between the mastoid angle of the parietal and mastoid part of the temporal. Borders. The superior borders extend from the superior to the lateral angles. They are deeply serrated for articulation with the occipital borders of the parietals and formed by this union the lambdoidal suture. The inferior borders extend from the lateral angles to their inferior angle. The upper half of each articulates with the mastoid portion of the corresponding temporal, the lower half with the petrous part of the same bone. These two portions of the inferior border are separated from one another by the jugular process, the notch on the anterior surface of which forms the posterior part of the jugular foramen. Structure the occipital, like the other cranial, the outer and inner tables, between which is the cancellous tissue, or diphoid. The bone is especially thick at the ridges, protuberances, condyles, and an anterior part of the basilar part. In the inferior fossae it is thin, semi-transparent, and destitute of diphoid. Ossification The planum occipitale of the squama is developed in membrane, and may remain separate throughout life when it constitutes the interparietal bone. The rest of the bone is developed in cartilage. The number of nuclei for the planum occipitale is usually given as four, two appearing in the middle line about the second month, and two some little distance from the middle line about the third month of fetal life. The planum nuclei of the squama is ossified from two centers, which appear about the seventh week of fetal life and soon unite to form a single piece. Union of the upper and lower portions of the squama takes place in the third month of fetal life. An occasional center, Kirchrig, appears in the posterior margin of the foramen magnum during the fifth month. This forms a separate ossicle, sometimes double, which unites with the rest of the squama before birth. Each of the lateral parts begins to ossify from a single center during the eighth week of fetal life. The basilar portion is ossified from two centers, one in front of the other. These appear by the sixth week of fetal life and rapidly coalesce. Mall states that the planum occipitale is ossified from two centers and the basilar portion from one. About the fourth year, the squama and the two lateral portions unite, and about the sixth year, the bone consists of a single piece. Between the 18th and 25th years, the occipital and sphenoid become united, forming a single bone. End of section 20. Recording by Jennifer Stearns, Concord, New Hampshire.